you're listening to the... I've nearly said this is history. That's my fault. <laughs> Tell them why, Angela. Right. Doing it now. Hello and welcome to We Are History. I'm Angela Barnes. And I'm John O'Farrell, who called the podcast This Is History on my notes to Angela, which is why she's laughing at me. did, and I cannot stop laughing about it. <laughs> this is history. I thought you'd done it as a joke. Turns no, I'm out, just no, seen just old age. No, so- I am history. <laughs> So, John, today we are talking about how the world nearly ended in 1983. Okay, this um, was news to me. Did you know before before I told you all about this no. that the world nearly ended twice, actually, in 1983? But we'll come on to that. I had no idea so, this is news to me. So you're going to be leading on this. I shall. About Abel Archer 83. Abel Archer 83, which was a routine NATO exercise that took place from the 8th to the 11th of November 1983. And it is considered to be the closest we've come to nuclear war uh, since the Cuban Missile Crisis of 62, which we'll probably talk about in another podcast one day. Yeah. Um, now, it obviously didn't happen because we are spoiler. here. Um, <laughs> spoiler alert, it didn't happen. Um, and at that time in 1983, I don't know about you, John, I was blissfully unaware of what was going on. What were you up to in 1983, November? Actually, what I was doing a lot of in 83 was going on CND demos. So I was really into the anti-nuclear ah. movement at this point, more than I was into the Labour Party, if truth be told. Um, and I went on a massive right. demo just two weeks before this. There was like 100,000 people marching through London. And I was one of those people. I remember the police pulling me over and seeing a CND sticker on my car and going, don't worry, we'll arrest you tomorrow. So I was basically <laughs> an unemployed graduate refusing to generate wealth at this point. <laughs> Good but going for you, on a lot of John. demos and wearing a CND badge. So I don't want to make you feel bad, John, but this happened. Well, my seventh birthday was on the 9th of November 1983. So my seventh birthday occurred in the middle of this crisis. And I'll be honest with you, John, it would have been a bit of a bummer if the world had ended on my birthday. Would have taken the edge off it, wouldn't it? Shall we pop the balloons? It would a little bit. What was that loud bang? <laughs> wow, was, that was... What was that? Was that a balloon? What I really love about this particular birthday is I remember it very well because my birthday's around firework night. Oh, yeah. My dad had acquired for my seventh birthday some indoor fireworks. We'd never seen them before. Wow. Um, and they were shit um but i love the idea that if this had happened it happened just as he lit an indoor firework <laughs> well maybe, <laughs> like, maybe blimey they're good <laughs> maybe it's the other way around maybe that's what the soviets picked up on their communication radar satellite stuff and maybe it's like it it's... there's unusual explosive activity in kent <laughs> you started the world war three mr barnes <laughs> <laughs> Funnily enough, my birthday being on the 9th of November, I don't know if you know this, John, but the 9th of November is known in Germany as Schicksaltag, um, which means day of fate. And that's because in Germany, lots of big events happen on the 9th of November. Wow. Um, going right back to the sort of, I think, the probably 17th or 18th century. But uh, to names like the Berlin Wall came down on the 9th of November and Kristallnacht happened on the 9th of November. And then this happened across and that period. birth of Angela Barnes. The birth of Angela Barnes, which was pretty catastrophic for the world as a whole. I think we can all agree. So set the scene, Angela. So, I will set the scene. So we're in the Cold War, right? We're we're coming towards the closing stages of it. But we didn't necessarily know that at the time. No, of course. Cold War, which has been raging since the end of World War Two. There's been a period of detente. So we had, as previously mentioned, 1962 was a Cuban Missile Crisis, which... Yes. I- Again, I think we will do an episode on. There's going to be a lot of times in this podcast when I say, this is really interesting, we will do an episode yeah, on it because yeah. we haven't got time to cover it all. Um, so since then, there's been this period of detente. We've had the Non-Proliferation Treaty, which was signed in 1970, which were both sides sort of agreeing 
to kind of cap their production of nuclear weapons. Uh, we've got the policy of mutually assured destruction, which is the the sort of defence of having no defence, basically. Yes. Whereby, you know, both sides, the East and West, as it was in the Cold War, because they've both got this nuclear capability that is so catastrophic, the idea being that, you know, if one side uses it, the other will retaliate and therefore it's pointless. Yeah, and that was always um, you, that was always the argument, wasn't it? That that could be that's why we had peace in Europe was because nuclear war would be so terrible that uh, mm. that's justified nuclear weapons. But I think your the story of this podcast shows you that maybe that was uh, maybe that uh, <laughs> yeah. wasn't could not be guaranteed. I mean, it does exactly. It does it does all sort of rest a lot on people behaving as you want them to behave. But we'll come to all that later. So in 1972, the Strategic Arms Limitation Talks. Uh, agreement assigned. This is effectively the nuclear freeze. So this is a point where the Soviets and the Americans, essentially in NATO, have agreed we're going to stop developing nuclear our nuclear capabilities. We're going to freeze it here uh, to have mutually assured destruction. Uh, you had 1975, the Helsinki Accords happened um, in Europe, which was basically um, a declaration of an attempt to improve relations between the communists and the West. So this was a, a relatively stable period in the Cold War through the um, sort of late 60s, early 70s. Now, just to explain a little bit about how nuclear war would happen if it did, the Americans have something called the Single Integrated Operational Plan. That's the sort of chain of command required to launch a nuclear attack. So you've got your National Command Authority, the NCA, which the president's a member of, and he can order the use of nuclear weapons. If he does that, the decision then goes to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff um, and then it goes to uh, the military command centre, which we call is no, like the war room, right? which always makes you think of Dr. Strangelove. Oh, yeah, God. Um, which if you haven't watched it, watch it, but it will terrify you. You've got the nuclear football we all know about is the briefcase that is carried by a sort of um, little man that follows the president around. The and I don't football. like to think about... Nuclear football, it's called. It's, it, that's what they call the briefcase. Wow. Um, the, the Russians call theirs, um, not at this point they didn't, but since um, the late 80s, they've called theirs the Chegit, which I think is quite a nice little word. Chegit does um, pop. Which is their... The, exactly. <laughs> Chegit goes pop, quite literally. <laughs> um, so we don't want to concentrate too much in this podcast on the nuclear hardware because... I find it really boring and scary. Yeah. Um, and it's not what this episode's about. There's lots of reading you can do about that if you do want to. There's an excellent book called Command and Control by Eric Schlosser, which talks a lot about the American nuclear hardware and the silos in which they're stored and all the terrifying things that can go wrong. By this stage in the 80s, you've got intercontinental ballistic missiles. So we're yeah. talking about ballistic missiles and cruise missiles and things like that. The days of a B-52 flying around with a nuclear bomb on it are over. Right. By this point, um, so the important the important missiles to talk about for this episode are the medium range missiles, right? So you've got your intercontinental ones. Oh yeah, but the but the medium range missiles are, are led to something called the Euro missile crisis, right? Because the Russians had these missiles called the SS twenties, and they stationed them on their western borders. Yeah. So they were threatening western sites in Europe. The strategic arms limitation talks we had before, which you know, led to the nuclear freeze, didn't include these missiles. So these were a threat. Right. So in 1976, the USSR has deployed these missiles and NATO have gone, hang on a minute, they can reach Western Europe. Right. This is a bit of a worry. So in 1979, NATO 
decide that they're going to deploy some medium-range missiles across Western sites in Europe that could reach Warsaw Pact countries, right? right? Now, these missiles, they're called the Pershing-2 missiles, and there are ground-based cruise missiles as well. So the Pershing-2 missiles are ballistic missiles, and you had they were called Griffon BGN-109Gs, but who gives a shit? Catchy, catchy. Um, the cruise missiles, right? right. Which um, We've heard of those. Uh, exactly. So the idea was NATO said, right, okay, well, if you've deployed them, we're going to deploy them because that's the only way we can keep mutually assured I destruction see. as a thing. We could keep parity. So... It was decided that 108 of these Pershing-2 missiles, 464 ground-launched cruise missiles would be deployed. Um, 160 of the cruise missiles would be coming to England, uh, 96 of the Pershing missiles in West Germany, 112 in Italy and Sicily, 48 in the Netherlands, 48 in Belgium. All 108 of the Pershing-2 missiles were going to be in West Germany. They weren't actually deployed until after this incident took place in okay. 1983, but the decision to deploy them was in 79. This obviously led to the peace movement uh, yes. being alarmed somewhat. Like you say, you were in CND. Enter at this me period. with my badges. Enter you well, with your badges. Yeah, I mean, they're, and they're... and of course, Greenham Common people yeah. will have heard. And again, this is something we'll do an entire episode on one day. I think. <laughs> the, yeah. Greenham Common is so interesting, but it was a women's camp yeah. at RAF Greenham Common where cruise missiles were to be deployed. Your mum was involved? Yeah, sorry. no, my mum used to take food down there. So she'd, my, my posh mum would do dinner parties for like Pam and Daphne. And she goes, oh, I was going to save, make a, save a portion for the ladies at Greenham. And she'd uh, drive from Maidenhead up to Greenham and say, now, those are the vegetarian stroganoffs. Uh, that's the one with beef and fresh cream. If you're if you're allergic to dairy, you don't have that one. And then come on, fudge, and take a golden retriever back in the car. Oh, and, uh, I love it. So, so my mum was there and she was very supportive of me and all my CND activism. See, the, you talk about all these um, missiles that the Russians had and the Americans had. But what you're not taking into account is that we had face painting. Uh, right okay so that was the real weapon that was the that real thing that was going to defeat the arms race we uh we and cnd were armed with circus skills and clown costumes and so uh you know i think the russians looked across at the western one we don't stand a chance against those guys shut themselves those, those post hippie you know, middle class peace protesters with their annoying songs <laughs> so i mean I was, the peace movement was a great thing and Greenham Common was yeah. a great thing. But that song they had, oh, my God. You can't kill the spirit. She is like a mountain. She goes on. <laughs> she goes on and on and on. It was such a terrible tune. But I'll be that's honest. That's your criticism. That is my criticism. <laughs> that's, that's what you're bringing to the table. Uh, that is what I'm saying. My, songs. My honest the devil reaction, has all the best songs, John. You know that. My honest reaction was that I was jealous of uh, the women of Greenham Common. My female friends went to Greenham. They left our student house. They slept there. They camped there. They climbed over the wire and uh, and got arrested and stuff. And I thought, it's not fair. Why aren't they men? It's the only time in history when men <laughs> haven't got to do everything they want. And, it, and I was For experiencing For John, let us have this. I know. I was you? experiencing a <laughs> tiny little bit of that uh, exclusion and injustice that women have experienced for thousands of centuries. But I didn't quite see it like that at the time. <laughs> Uh, well, I, I, gender was such an important thing for Greenham Common because the the rhetoric was, you know, we're mothers and we're protecting future children, right? That's the right. The and, and they would do things like they would have days where they all wore black yeah. uh, in mourning for the children that would die in a nuclear war. Yeah, well, we were on like one that. march and, where um, I was with my mother and we were going to have a mass die in. 
on this march mm. and we all had to lie down in the street to demonstrate what it would look like to have thousands of people all dead in the street so we're walking down kensington church street with my, me and my mum and fudge the golden retriever the dog. <laughs> and um we all lie down and the, the, the hairdresser comes outside and stands and looks at them all. And it's my mum's hairdresser. And she goes, hello, Julian. Hello. <laughs> and I was going, mum, shut up. Shut up. And, the, and she goes, I'm, book, I'm booked in for a Debbie Perm on Thursday. Julian goes, Thursday, dear. I've got you down for Tuesday. No, it's definitely Thursday. I spoke to Sharon. Mum, would you shut up? And, the, and the, the class war guys are looking at me and going, and I'm going, oh, she's not with me. I'm not, I've nothing to do with this lady going on about a demi-perm with Julian. I, I thought at that point that a, a genuine Holocaust might have been preferable. But yeah, they, my parents would always come with me on demos and we'd, they'd always want to stop off at a restaurant. So we'd march down sort of... You, you know, might as well make a day of it, Yeah, John. yeah, they'd That's go to some I posh say. restaurant. We'd have, you know... The, posh food and wine and say to her, we won't stay for coffee we're getting back on the march <laughs> so yeah I love it. so these anti-euro missile rallies are happening all over western europe particularly yes. in bonn in west germany here where these pershing two missiles were due to all but and that's a particularly sensitive area as well of course because you're yes. right you know you've got the border right there yeah I mean, with uh, east Mike, germany michael hesseltine went to the berlin wall uh, he was the Minister of Defence and he looked over the wall and said, they're not allowed to demonstrate over there. They can't have rallies. Mm. And it's quite a clever, clever political point, damn it. Yeah, but yeah, damn him. So you had the European nuclear disarmament uh, campaign. You had the Seneca Women's Encampment for a Future of Peace and Justice. Uh, you had all of these, uh, the Plowshares Movement, the Catholic left group from America, they got involved. Um, so there was international protest against the deployment of these missiles. Yeah. But in the meantime, what are the governments doing of the USA and the Soviet Union? Well, the Soviets, uh, they start to get a bit more paranoid uh, that the US is likely to make a preemptive strike. They're not happy about the deployment of these weapons. They've received intelligence that the missiles could reach Moscow in 15 minutes, which they can't. But that's right. the intelligence they had. So they're getting a bit nervous and they consider changing their launch on attack policy, which is the policy that both sides had, which is that they wouldn't launch... A nuclear attack until they were aware of an attack being launched on them, right. if you see what I mean, which assured this mutually assured destruction. Um, but they were considering at this point changing their policy to launch on warning, which is terrifying. So if they picked up some intelligence that an, a, a strike was likely, they may do a preemptive strike. Now, um, there were more strategic arms limitation talks took place at this time. So we'd had the first lot in 1972. There was a second lot of talks happened and an agreement was signed in Vienna on June the 18th in 1979, again, to limit um, the proliferation of these mid-range missiles. However, it was never ratified um, because on the 24th of December 1979, Soviet troops went into Afghanistan and staged a coup. And Jimmy Carter, who was president of the US at the time, he withdrew that treaty from consideration. Right. So it was never ratified, largely in protest at what was happening in Afghanistan and other things, the Soviets, you know, general human rights abuses. They're cracking down on freedom of movement in Poland yes. and all sorts of that. You know, they boycotted the Moscow Olympics in 1980. That's right. The Americans um, didn't take part in that one, did they? Because Thatcher decided right. that the British athletes wouldn't take part. And then the sort of British, the head of the British Olympic Committee said, it's not actually up to you. You don't have the power to stop them. And the British athletes just went anywhere. And there's a huge angry call from Downing Street to the this this sort of posh chap in charge of the Olympics. And said, no, no, they've been training and they're going. And it's like, she, she couldn't believe that she couldn't stop it like the Americans stop could. Stop it. Yeah. Wow. 
Meanwhile, there's a presidential campaign going on in 1980. Of course. And you've got ex-Hollywood actor Ronald Reagan is the uh, Republican candidate. And he was elected. Now, Reagan was fiercely anti-communist, like proper. And he'd actually been a Democrat until the end of World War II. And it was the Red Scare, really, that turned him, the threat of communism. And we've done an episode on this, so if you want to hear about the Red Scare, listen to that. Ronald Reagan, in 1947, he gave a list of names of people he believed were communists to the FBI. Uh, He was an FBI informer. His code name was T-10, which is very sexy. T-10. You think they could have done a bit better than that? T-10 sounds like a robot. (laughs) And in 1947, he became president of the Screen Actors Guild. And as president, which he was for a long time, he did nothing to help rehabilitate those people that had been blacklisted during the Red Scare. Um, Completely disinterested in that. Um, In 1979, so this is before his presidential campaign, uh, he'd been a governor and he was involved in politics, obviously, by this time. Um, In 1979, he visited NORAD, which is the sort of place where the early warning system is set up so your radar and everything else that would detect a nuclear strike. And he went on a visit there and it was sort of explained to him this policy of mutually assured destruction. And it completely horrified him. Wow. Right? He he was just, could not believe that this sort of delicate balance was all that was keeping, yes. you know, people alive. And um, he was incredibly anti-nuclear weapons. Wow. Ronald Reagan, he, he really was. And also just terrified of communism yes. <laughs> as well. He couldn't really get on board in his head this whole having no defence was the best defence thing. And Nixon had, what before Watergate sort of put paid to all of it, had started to think about plans for an anti-ballistic missile. Right Now, Reagan at this point was like, well, maybe that's worth revisiting, right? The idea being that if you can defend yourself against a ballistic missile coming in, then you can make a strike without any damage to your country. I, right? I can see this going course, wrong. I can see this going badly well, it wrong. <laughs> it, it's, it's, it's a worrying situation because then obviously the whole concept of mutually assured destruction yeah. and stability yeah. and parity is completely, you know, not there. Yeah. So even though this was his thinking and this was his idea, his advisors quite wisely, I think, persuaded him not to bring any of that stuff up on the campaign trail. I see, okay. They so were like, you know, just maybe focus on the economy and don't talk about the nuclear stuff, yeah, Ronald. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, I remember the election was in November... 1980. I was my first term at university. We went to an end of the world party that night. Oh, <laughs> really? That's every, amazing. And when he was he was president and Thatcher was prime minister, every student house had the same poster. It was a Gone with a Wind poster with Thatcher in Reagan's arms and a nuclear explosion in the background. I'll have to find a copy of it and uh, <laughs> oh, find a copy amazing. of it and tweet it out. But everyone had that poster up. You know. I really tried to find. There was my um, uncle Aidan was an actor. Is an actor. And um, at that time, he was doing... So he would have been... He's probably about your age, John. So yeah. he would have... And um, at that time, he was doing lots of musical sketch comedy and yeah. stuff. And he was in a group. And they appeared on TVAM doing a, a sketch, a song that he'd written. And he was playing the piano as Ronald Reagan. Wow. And there was Maggie Thatcher doing a duet. Yeah. And, and I asked him if he'd got any footage of it. He's like, he hasn't. I've tried to look online. But oh, God, I've got, this memory it, but... Of, uh, I've got this memory of a sketch at News Review, which was somebody coming on as Reagan going, I got the whole world in my hands. I've got the whole world. And then he goes, starts clapping. <laughs> and he goes, oh. <laughs> <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> and it always went down really well. <laughs> <laughs> so that's where we are at in the US. In the USSR, we've had Brezhnev has been the general secretary of the Communist Party in the USSR. Uh, He dies in 1982. 
And Yuri Andropov becomes the save. Andropov? Andropov? I'm never and- sure how Andropov, to... Andropov, I think you say, yeah. We used to have a joke, and I remember the punchline was being Andropov, as in hand drop off, and I can't remember the setup, see, but the, that was the, a little joke we used this, to do. Yeah, luckily uh, this isn't live. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, is this thing on? Um, <laughs> yes, they, 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 the Soviet leaders seem to be quite, there seem to be a lot of Soviet leaders around this time. I think they were deci- yes. it was all decided on who had the longest eyebrows. <laughs> yeah, there, there was no sort of, well, he, Andropov had been up to this point the head of the KGB. Oh, great. Um, and he wasn't the expected choice to replace Brezhnev. I think they thought Chenenko would right. be the choice, but whatever machinations went on to select them. Andropov was announced as the new general secretary. Um, Now, it could be argued, John, that having spent years as the head of the KGB made you a little tiny, whiny bit paranoid. I think you might be right. Um, The KGB obviously being the intelligence services of the Soviet Union. So that's what's happening in the Soviet Union. Back to America. Reagan now is in power. It's 1982. He's spent a year and a bit in the White House And at this point, they do a military exercise, right? Now, these military exercises, we'll be talking about these quite a bit. They happen regularly, right, Uh, to different scales, just to test people uh, know the chain of command and what they do if such situations arise, right? There's nothing unusual about military exercises taking place. But there was one in 1982 called Ivy League, and it did something to Ronald Reagan, people have said, that because it was about a nuclear strike... And um, he wrote that he felt that he'd seen the United States of America disappear. Right, It had a really emotional impact on Reagan. And he felt like it was something that really happened, like it had really got in his head. Right. Um, And really, this sort of started to change his approach to nuclear warfare. All these thoughts he had before he was president, when he went to visit the early warning system and all of that stuff started to come back into his head. And on the 14th of September, 1982, he had an encounter that really changed his approach. Uh, He met with Edward Teller. Now, Edward Teller was a scientist and he was instrumental in developing the H-bomb after, you know, back in the 50s. And at this point, he's in his 70s and he visits Reagan in the White House for a 30-minute meeting, right? And in this meeting... Edward Teller, and I'm laughing because it sounds so mental, but in this meeting, Edward Teller says to Ronald Reagan that he has a vision of what he calls the third generation of nuclear weapons, right? Now, the first generation being atomic bombs, second generation being hydrogen bomb. This is the third generation. And it involved, bear with me here, John, X-ray laser beams in space. (laughs) Okay. Okay. now you laugh, but this is a really highly respected scientist with the presidents of the United President of the United States. And his plan uh, basically is that you can set off nuclear explosions in space that can direct X-ray laser beams to destroy incoming missiles. Wow. Okay. now this is the anti-ballistic missile thing that Ronald Reagan's been thinking about. But of course, if he does this, that turns mutually assured destruction on yes. its head. Yes. Right? Reagan is dead impressed with Edward Teller. Right. Who wouldn't be dead impressed? He's talking about laser beams. Yeah. Yeah. He's got the I'm technology. Impressed. He's got you know? he's, he's he's built this in his shed. I've got I've got a little quote here from this is from Ronald Reagan's diary from that evening. Oh yeah. 
Um, he wrote, Dr. Teller came in. He's pushing an exciting idea that nuclear weapons can be used in connection with lasers to be non-destructive except as used to intercept and destroy enemy missiles far above the Earth. Right. And this went on to become what's known as a strategic defense initiative. We'll come on to that in a minute. Right. Um, John, I think we should uh, have a little break because I've got overwhelmed with excitement about the idea of laser beams and I need to sit down and a cup of we'll tea. We'll take a break there. Happy? Come back if the world is still intact. We are history. Hope you had a nice little break. We're talking about nuclear stuff. We are talking about nuclear stuff and we're very soon going to come on to how the world nearly ended in 1983. So we've talked about Ronald Reagan and his sort of views on nuclear weaponry, etc. And I think at this point we should talk a little bit about, and the word's a misnomer really, but intelligence. Right. We've got Yuri Andropov is now the General Secretary of the uh, Soviet Union and he's ex-KGB. So as we said, a little bit paranoid. Now... When he was in the KGB, he launched an operation known as was Operation Ryan, but people call it Operation Ryan because it's spelled Ryan, R-Y-A-N, which is a Russian acronym that means nuclear missile attack. Basically, what he did in embassies across the world, yeah. all the Russian embassies had or Soviet embassies had KGB officials in them. Right? It was sort of an open secret right. that 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 was happening and he instructed all these KGB officers to keep an eye out for a list of and there was over 200 indicators that the West might be planning a preemptive nuclear strike and they included wow. things like look out for extra blood going into blood banks um, you know looking at where nuclear weapons were stored observing lines of communication reconnaissance of the heads of churches and banks surveillance of security services and he asked all his officers to make extra reports to all the work they were already doing, right? right? Now, of course, what these officers did when, oh, God, we've got more work to do, we just tell them what they want to hear. Right, right? of course. We just tell them what they want to hear because otherwise I'm going to get in trouble. I'm going to, you know... Well, if you miss it, if, it, if you miss it on your watch, uh, you're right. going to get in trouble. So you're always going to big up anything that's like, oh, well, that's uh, that's that's definitely happening yeah no yeah. I'm, I'm, it's like when the guy warned um bush about osama bin laden mm. he had you know he had plans and he went okay you've covered your ass is what bush said to him yeah and it's like it's and the that's same what it was like. and that's the thing yeah. you know the same thing was going on in the cia in the u.s intelligence you had yeah. the head of cia was william case or bill casey um who'd been a long-term friend of reagan's he was a lawyer um he'd been his campaign manager and he really wanted a more aggressive approach to the Soviet Union. He felt that, you know, the CIA were just sort of going through the motions. And he came in and pretty much got his officers doing what the Operation Ryan was doing for the Soviets, you know, to, to right. just... Um, he made a speech, actually, in which he suggested, obviously, that the Soviets were behind a lot of international terrorism. Which is, yeah, that's pretty rich from the government funding the Contras in Nicaragua. Right. Basically, a terrorist organization. Right. I mean, we're talking in the time of the Reagan doctrine, right? Which yeah. was a, a doctrine which meant it provided overt and covert aid to anti communist guerrillas and resistance movements and stuff in like Asia and Africa and Latin America. That was all going on at this time. Yep. You know, the Contras in Nicaragua, the Mujahideen in Afghanistan, Gaddafi in Libya. Uh, sorry, the opposition to Gaddafi in Libya, um, Solidarity in Poland. They're supporting all of these anti communist yep. organizations. So the CIA stations were also instructed they need to produce monthly reports on covert Soviet action in their region, right? But the thing is with these CIA agents just weren't didn't really take it that seriously, whereas obviously the Soviet Union or the KGB were getting more and more paranoid. And yeah. 
the CIA did pick up certain things. They picked up that the gross national product of the Soviet Union was at its lowest level since World War II. They picked up on a bit of military intelligence and manoeuvring, but didn't really pick up on this paranoia, which was key, right. really, to what happened next. So we're now in uh, March 1983. Reagan makes a speech. He made a lot of speeches, but in this particular speech, he referred to the Soviet Union as being an evil empire. Wow. And I think it's fair to say that pissed them off a little bit. I bet it did. Nobody likes to be called an evil empire, do they? Andropov responded saying the US can think only in terms of confrontation and bellicose lunatic anti-communism. Right. He had a bit of a point. Um, Yes. And then later that same month, we're now 23rd of March, 1983, Ronald Reagan makes a televised address and much against the wishes of a lot of his advisors, he decides... Uh, as well as talking about the Soviet threat in Angola and Central America and Ethiopia. And he saw this chance to win back a little bit of support for the US military at this point, which which has been that support has been decimated from Vietnam you know, right. onwards, really. And, and he decides to launch the Strategic Defensive Initiative. Do you remember that? The, the laser beams in space. Oh, my God. Yes. yes. Um, which became known as the Star Wars program. So... I think in Reagan's head, maybe the film Star Wars was real. So he's talking about evil empire and uh, Star Wars. Maybe he thought that the Soviets and Darth Vader were like all in the same sort of gang. It's like, there's no evidence. Like, Have you like, ever seen oh. Darth Vader and Anthropov in the same room? Never, Have you? never see them together, do you? He's that funny, furry little Chewbacca fella. He's funny. Oh, we laugh, but we nearly all died. Um, (laughs) So the New York Times declared that SDI was a pipe dream, a projection of fantasy into policy. Um, SDI, that's not an embarrassing disease, is it? Well, kind of, John, kind of. Um, (laughs) Thatcher was against, she was against the Star Wars programme because obviously the idea was to shield the US, to deflect any incoming ballistic missiles and... Yeah. I, and yes. she felt, well, if you shield the US, that's going to mean they're going to come our way instead. Right? Yes. We're going to cop that shit. Yes. <laughs> Moscow starts getting nervous at this point. I say starts getting nervous. They're already pretty nervous. But what they do know is that America is way advanced in terms of computer technology. And what they don't know is what that really means. Right. How advanced. Right. As far as they're concerned, they don't know if this Star Wars program could happen in two years or 30 years or, you know. Yeah. What the, so they're, they're getting really uh, antsy um, and they felt that having this program in place potentially would mean that Washington's far more likely to start a nuclear war if they know they can defend themselves. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. And, and remember that this was a generation of Soviet leaders who'd lived through the Second World War. They'd witnessed mm. the USSR being invaded by surprise, being caught on the hot by Germany. They were underprepared and yep. their country was devastated as a result. So they were on a mission to never let that happen again. Absolutely. The response from Andropov four days after the announcement of Star Wars was all attempts at achieving military superiority over the USSR are futile. The Soviet Union will never let that happen. It will never be caught defenseless by any threat. Let there be no mistake about this in Washington. It's time they stopped devising one option after another in the search of the best ways of unleashing nuclear war in the hope of winning it. Engaging in this is not just irresponsible, it is insane. And of course, what this meant to the Soviet Union is that all that paranoia that inspired Operation Ryan back in 1979, it started to become a reality as far as they're concerned. They're like, yes. we were right. We weren't paranoid. We were absolutely right. They are going to start a nuclear war. And that's what it felt like to them. Now, I think at this point, it's worth talking about um, intelligence again, because obviously 
it's the intelligence services that are feeding back this information on on both yeah. sides. Um, and there's a couple of, of double agents that I want to talk about. And again, we could do whole podcasts on these people. Yeah. The KGB office in London had a chap in it called Oleg Gordievsky. He sounds Russian to me. There's a book that I want to recommend, which is excellent. I loved it. It's called The Spy and the Traitor. And it is by Ben McIntyre. And it's all oh, yeah. about Oleg uh, Gordievsky. Um, and it's really, I mean, it involves him being extracted from the USSR thanks to a Safeways carrier bag. Which a Safeways is carrier bag? A Safeways carrier bag. You have to read the book to find out more or we'll do an episode on it. But it, There'd be a 5p charge for that now. Absolutely, there would. <laughs> So he was a double agent. He'd been recruited by MI6 um, sometime before when he was working in Denmark, but he's now in London and he was passing on a lot of information to MI6, including what was happening with Operation Ryan and all of that stuff. So you had this double agent right in the heart of it in London. So in British intelligence circles, thanks to the information he was passing on, slowly the penny began to drop that, you know, Moscow's actually genuinely scared of the West and, and this aggressive stance in America. And, right. you know, that could then motivate them to make a preemptive strike. So you've got the paranoia starting to grow on both sides now. On the other side of the fence, there was another double agent that's worth a mention because he is quite instrumental in what happened called Rainer Rupp, who was a radical student in West Germany, anti-capitalist, and he was recruited by a Stasi officer in East Berlin. He initially didn't no, necessarily overtly he was being recruited, although I think it became more and more obvious when uh, he was doing a job. He was very involved in denazification and pursuing right. war criminals and things. Um, but gradually in East Berlin, they started teaching him things like how to cipher and decipher and how to use microfilm and how to read newspapers in parks with a knowing look and all of that sort right. of spy stuff. And, and newspapers think... with holes cut in them. Exactly, yeah. Them. So yeah. Um, it gradually became... You know, he, he was being recruited by the Stasi and he was incredibly intelligent and uh, he was at university in West Germany and he married an English woman, actually, or he certainly had a girlfriend who was an English woman, Anne Bowen, um, right. who also got involved in this to a certain extent. But he actually got a job in NATO. Um, okay. So he infiltrated NATO and it was through him that the head of it's the HVA, which is the Stasi linked foreign intelligence agency yep. in East Germany, uh, Marcus Wolf. he knew of the precise sites in Western Europe where all these missiles were going and their technical specifications through this guy in, in NATO passing that right. information. Right. So at this point in 83, each side now has a direct insight into the strategic planning of the other side, right, yep. through its spies. Yeah. And this is where, John, 1983 starts to go a little bit batshit bonkers. Oh, my um, God. David Bowie yeah. releases Let's Dance. Yeah. ITV launches blockbusters. I mean, that was about as mad as it got, to be honest. But that was only the start of it, John. <laughs> in uh, March and April, there are more of these exercises take place, these military exercises. There's a big naval exercise in the Northern Pacific called Fleet X-83. And then on the 1st of September, 83, so we're skipping forward a little bit, 1st of September, the Korean airline 007 is shot down out of the air. It's taken off from Anchorage in Alaska. And it veers accidentally into Soviet airspace, uh, was allegedly mistaken for a spy plane. There's a lot of debate over that. And it was shot down by the Soviets. And this obviously led to yeah. a huge increase in anti-Soviet yeah. sentiment in the US. Reagan was woken up by his advisors when this happened. Mm. And apparently he said, don't wake me up unless it's one of our planes. <laughs> it's a Korean plane. Wake me up when it's an American Jeez. plane. 
shot down. Wow. Wow. <laughs> um, now, when this is happening, Andropov uh, is ill. He's properly not very well. Uh, he's got oh a kidney problem. He's got a weak heart. When the Korean airline was shot down in September, he was in the Crimea. He was having dialysis. He had his personal doctor with him. So he was still in position and still running the country from yeah. his bed, essentially, um, speaking wow. to his deputy, Chenenko, every day and to Gorbachev, who was his protege. At this point, I remember there was a British TV show called Whoops Apocalypse. It's by... Um, I don't think um, I've heard of that. That sounds No, it was quite, quite funny, alley. actually. It was by two British writers, and it was basically about a senile old uh, American president and loads of old Russian leaders, and they kept dying. And they kept wheeling out new <laughs> Russian leaders in these wheelchairs it's with huge basically eyebrows. what did happen. Um, I mean, they were... Always yeah. very old, the general secretaries in the... And not yeah. particularly healthy. They're big vodka drinkers and didn't necessarily have yeah, healthy quite. diets. You know, they didn't live to ripe old ages, these guys, because they were living a bit of a high life. Um, and of course, his illness isn't helping his paranoia levels either, you know. And he, he thinks that if... I mean, it was fierce, it was kept secret from his own people how ill he was, really. Um, right. You know, because they felt that if the uh, NATO countries got wind of how ill he was that'd be a good opportunity for them to sort of decapitate the leadership right you know yeah. and um so yeah he it really increased his paranoia then uh at the end of september 1983 we come to uh, the 26th of september the first time that the world nearly ended in that year. Oh, my God. I don't know if you've heard of a chap called Stanislav Petrov. He was one of the people working uh, in the early warning systems in the Soviet Union. Um, so he would, yep. they would be monitoring airspace, monitoring radar, monitoring any signs of an impending nuclear attack. Uh, he was on shift when the computer informed him gradually that five launches of nuclear missiles had taken place from the US. Now, wow. he had a gut feeling that this was a false alarm, um, largely wow, because you. they were using a new system. So he was like, he didn't know how trustworthy it was. Um, yeah. And also, he'd been told that, you know, that if a war happens, it's going to be all out war, right? It's all or nothing. So he felt the launch yeah. of five missiles was unlikely that that would be it. You know. Wow. So this guy's a sort of a hero then. I mean, he averted World War Three because if he had raised the alarm, if he had said missiles have been launched, the likelihood yeah. is the Soviets would have launched a retaliation. That is in all likelihood what would yeah. happen. So basically the, his, his computer was going, missiles have been launched. He's going, uh, oh, I don't think so. it probably, it does that sometimes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I'll just turn it off and turn it on again. Um, yeah, exactly. Which I think is actually what he did. Um, <laughs> but rather than be, That's and obviously it, it did come about that it was a false alarm and he did avert World War III. Right. But rather than his sort of Soviet bosses saying, well done, mate, good job, they reprimanded right. him because he failed wow. to follow protocol because he didn't wow. Which was to, report the wow, incident. To launch World War III. He was reprimanded for not documenting his actions and he said his statement to that was, it's because I had a phone in one hand and the intercom in the other. I don't have a third hand. Like he's obviously, you know, in a <laughs> okay. bit of a state of panic. He wasn't just going, ah, fuck it. He was, yeah. you know... Um, and it got yeah. to the point where he basically got driven out of his job and he he was made a scapegoat, really. He ended up living in a 
sort of block in the middle of nowhere in Russia. No one ever celebrated him in Russia. He was never seen as a hero. And when the truth came out in the West, like it was America who awarded him the World Citizen Award and... You know, he started, wow. Germany awarded him with something. And, and it turns out the false alarm had been created. This, this is where it's so frightening. That the false alarm had been created by a rare alignment of sunlight on high altitude clouds above North Dakota. That's what his computer well, picked so, up. Uh, it's like the astrologer's talk, isn't it? It's like, you know, yeah. Jupiter is in your house. And so there'll be, you may notice yeah. World War Three in it's just late scary. midweek. It really is. Even his own wife had no idea what he'd done. Like nobody, he never told anybody what had happened. Wow. And when, when it all came how, out. How yeah, much work, well, When it all came out, his wife said to him, what did you do? Like he's suddenly getting these awards and stuff. And he said, nothing. I did nothing. You know, and then he died actually wow. in, in 2017. So that was the first time that the world nearly ended in 1983. Um, now, September, October 1983, things are, it's worth mentioning this. Obviously, you know, the Cold War is happening, but there's, there's tensions all over the world at this time, particularly in the Middle East. You've got the emergence of Hezbollah. And because of the tensions in the Middle East at the time, there's a military buildup happening. Um, yeah. But this was a signifier to the Soviets that they were preparing for war. Yeah. On the 23rd yeah. of October, yeah. Hezbollah uh, attack U.S. Marines, Soviet intelligence pick up that uh, uh, the, the military facilities all across the U.S. are now on high alert because of what had happened. Yeah. They interpreted that as a key indicator and that U.S. is mobilizing its forces around the world. Around this time, isn't it? The um, American invasion of Grenada, 25th of October. 25th of October. So the Hezbollah attack happened on the 23rd, two days Americans later. Americans invade the tiny Caribbean um, island of Grenada. And I've, I've been there. Actually. I went there on my honeymoon. Yeah. Uh, yeah, just seven, really? just seven years un- after this. And we had a tour and we saw where the, the gun holes were in the buildings, you know. Wow. But what happened was that the Russians picked up greatly increased communications chatter between Washington and London. And they thought this must be evidence of sort of yeah, increased right. conspiracy to launch nuclear weapons. Um, and but, yeah. but actually, it was just, well, it well, you was. know, you think it was just <laughs> Maggie going, love you, Ronnie. Oh, love you too, Maggie. Uh, <laughs> actually, it was Maggie cross with Ronnie going, what the hell do you think you're doing? The, you know, the, our queen is Queen of Grenada. That's the Commonwealth. You can't just invade that without telling us. So basically, that's what they did. They invaded a Commonwealth country without so much as a phone call to Maggie. Yeah. Before I think there was like three hours notice or something. Yeah. The troops had already been set on their way. And this tiny little island, which had had a left-wing government that they didn't approve of, and it was a big illegal act to go in and dispose the government of another independent country. Yeah. Maggie was insulted by it and told Ronnie so, but Russians interpreted the increased communications back and forth as evidence of Britain and America working together, not a diplomatic spat between no, Maggie No, absolutely. And they see increased communications, and of course that was one of the indicators they'd all been told yeah. in their embassies to look out for by Operation yeah, Ryan. Yeah. So they report it back to the KGB. All oh, those comms are going up and it's yeah. fueling this paranoia. It's fueling this paranoia. Amazingly, the Americans actually made a, a film about, a Clint Eastwood movie about the invasion of Grenada. It's like, ah, we took on those 12 guys with catapults <laughs> and pea shooters. It's a Clint Eastwood movie called Heartbreak Jesus Ridge. Christ. And it's about how heroic the Marines were invading Grenada. It's like, I won't tell you who wins. Don't want to yeah. spoil it for you. Jesus. Um, now, these 
military exercises we've been talking about. They are continuing. Um, There was a collection of military exercises at this point in 1983 uh, called Autumn Forge, and they included exercises called Reforger, 83, Atlantic Lion, 83. I see they're always such macho names, aren't they? It's never Marigold, 83, or Little Mouse, 83. Flower flower Press. Yeah. Operation Tidy the Bedroom. Exactly. (laughs) Now we come on to the exciting bit, right? This is the one we want to talk about. About. This is the Able Archer exercise, 1983. Right. Now, Able Archer was an annual exercise that took place. It's a command right. post exercise, so it doesn't involve any movement of troops or anything like that or deployment of tanks. It is merely the commanders working through a scenario as to what they would do if it got to the point where a nuclear attack is launched. OK, right. so you've got NATO's Allied Command Europe, known as ACE, which I think is brilliant. Um, It's so they could practice their signals, communications and the procedures to be used in the event of war. So you've got your exercise planners. What they do, they draft a scenario and in it, it focuses on one principal issue, which is a request by NATO commanders to deploy nuclear weapons as a final resort in a full scale war with the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact allies that they felt they were losing. Right. So they've drafted this scenario where they've tried everything else and they are losing against the Warsaw Pact. This is time. So um, in essence, it was just a rehearsal for NATO's nuclear weapons to be released. It was played out in a nuclear vault bunker, which was located by the Supreme Headquarters of the Allied Powers in Europe, which is called Shape at Mons in uh, Belgium, about 30 miles southwest of Brussels. Um, Belgian army there. Yeah. Bless them. Belgian army with their spud guns. (laughs) Now, come on, John. We know that the army were not deployed in this exercise. Signalers went out into the countryside, into the woods of West Germany, and they would, using the prepared script, be sending the messages into the bunker, reporting on the war that's supposedly taking place. Okay. Now, the Soviet intelligence regularly monitored these exercises just to see what was going on. They knew they were exercises. uh, And the war staff out in the countryside would be sending these messages into the bunker giving them some curveballs giving them some you know things to think about and to, um there were one colonel spike calendar one of the staff directing able archer 83 he said there's always an ever-changing situation and you'd have to be continually adapting just like you'd expect in any combat so these right. commanders are, are, are sort of having to think on their feet and act as if this is happening The Soviet radio operators that are listening in and following, they know it's an exercise because every transmission on the radio begins with the phrase exercise, exercise, exercise. Okay, which is my personal trainer's motto. Um, Very good. But that's what they'd start with. (laughs) You've still got it. (laughs) But because because I know under lockdown, it's hard these days. Exercise, 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 exercise. But because the Soviets are so paranoid, they start to think, ah, well, they would say that, wouldn't they? Oh, God, yeah, no. I don't know. Well, what, We're only course, pretending, yeah. What if this is a real threat and they're just saying it's an exercise? Because right. actually the Soviets themselves, that was their plan under attack, was to disguise an attack right, I see. as an exercise. A, yeah. Meanwhile, these war gamers in this bunker are just getting on with it. No idea that the Russians are sitting, listening in, getting more and more paranoid. They start counting down. They've got down to DEFCON 2 so far, which is the next step to nuclear war. And eventually they get down to DEFCON 1. And on Tuesday, the 8th of November, the war gamers in the bunker, they start to request from their political leaders authorization for a massive nuclear strike against the Warsaw Pact. And at this point, when the strike is about to happen, NATO changes the security codes it's been using in the exercise and has used in every Able Archer exercise before. Now, I'm not entirely sure why they did that, but they did. Probably so Reagan could remember them. 
It's like, Probably, here's yeah. My, something here's my to birthday. Reagan won. My, <laughs> my mum's my maiden name and my birthday. <laughs> Probably is. So the Soviet radio operators, already paranoid, listening in, go, hang on a minute. Yeah. They've changed their codes. Right, that's it. This is definitely right. the real thing. This is definitely what's happening wow. here. Meanwhile, Andropov is in a hospital outside Moscow uh, where he's got an entire floor is his sort of command centre now. And they're thinking, oh, the Americans know this. Yeah, yeah, and he is really convinced this is happening. Wow. Another signifier that got the Soviets worried is in this exercise, Ronald Reagan and the other leaders of the allied Europe countries, they were not taking part in the exercise because it had been deemed that if they did take part, then it could easily be misinterpreted as not right. being an exercise. And that was quite normal as well. So they had deputies step in to take their place. So Thatcher didn't take part. There was a command cell in the Ministry of Defence in Whitehall who sort of played the part of the British political establishment. And so they weren't involved. On that morning, the 8th of November, 1983, Ronald Reagan and Nancy Reagan, they get on Air Force One because they're going on a tour of Japan and the Far right. East, right? So they know that this exercise is happening. They're not involved in it. They've left their officers to deal with this exercise. Off they go. But the Soviets think, hang on a minute. He's getting on Air right. Force One. He's getting out of the way of the bombs. He, he's getting he's getting the hell out yeah. of Dodge. right? And they know that Air Force One is fully equipped to launch a nuclear attack from. So that again makes them go, right, that's it. They're definitely doing it. They've changed the codes that he's got on Air Force One. He was just going for a jolly to Japan, but they didn't know that. And so at this point, the Soviet nuclear arsenal is on the maximum state wow. of combat Wow, so that's alert. not something that happens every day. No, at this point, 50% of their SS-20 missile force is mobilised, right? Usually only 10% is. Wow. Um, they've all been ordered to take up their top secret field stations. Uh, bombers were kept on combat alert, fully fueled and loaded with weapons. You had crews on 15-minute standby. Um, wow. Soviet fighter squadrons put on even higher level during Able Archers, what they call strip alert. Squadrons in Czechoslovakia and East Germany are put on strip alert. Everyone is ready for go, right? They're just waiting East Germany, signal. East Germany on strip alert. We're not back onto that, are we? <laughs> it's always on strip alert in Berlin, am I right? Um, so they're ready to go. They're just waiting now for Andropov to go now. Wow. Andropov is monitoring everything from this hospital he's in. And everything came to a head on the evening of Wednesday, the 9th of November, little Angela Barnes's seventh birthday. Oh, right? I know. Did they think about that? No. Did they bugger? So you've got the KGB and the GRU, which is the Soviet military intelligence. Yep. They sent out on that evening top secret and super urgent flash telegrams to their residencies around the world. Yep. So all these KGB officers in these different embassies across the world suddenly get this message that the situation is now critical. The NATO exercise is a preparation for a sudden nuclear attack. Now, old Olive, Oleg Gordievsky, your right. man in London, your double agent, is yep. sitting there and he gets this flash from the KGB going, they're about to attack. He sat there in the West going, I mean, it doesn't look like we're about to attack. Well, they're well, it's about not the to end attack. of the world. And they go, no, no, it is <laughs> the end of the world. Yeah, but you know, take it. I mean, worse things happen. No, they, they really yeah. don't. Yeah, but as long as you've got your health. These officers are finding it all absurd because they're sat in the West going, there's literally nothing happening. There's definitely nothing happening here, you know. It's pretty sure I'd notice if there's a nuclear war. Yeah, well, you've got Ryan Rupp, the, who is the Stasi intelligence officer who's in NATO. 
He's trying to get yeah. a message going. I'm literally in NATO. I'm telling you, it's not happening. Right? This is. Oh, right. I'm, and he's trying wow. to get a message out, and they'd given him a little, like, sort of a tape recorder machine that somehow he put a message into it, which then it turned into a, a an audio coded right. thing, which he then had to go to this designated phone box and press play into the receiver, and that right. would then decode the message back at the KGB. Um, so he tried to get this message across, but of course. They're constantly being inundated in the KGB with this information from their agents. So it's not known really whether his intelligence would even notice that it definitely wasn't happening. But it is thought that he probably played a part in Andropov not giving the... um, But it's not known. You had in uh, US intelligence at Ramstein Air Base was a guy called Leonard Perutz. And uh, he receives these reports that these nuclear bombers have been put on standby at airfields in Poland and East Germany. And he's like, well, that's not normal. But like old Stanislav Petrov before, he has this gut feeling that he shouldn't sound the alarm. Um, Thank you. Thank you, Leonard. Absolutely. Thank you for these men and their gut feelings. And, And if he had sounded the alarm to the US, of course, the Soviets would have interpreted that as a uh, this is definitely on it's confirmation yeah absolutely um and and of course they've got their launch under attack doctrine so if us have been alerted they would have attacked so again leonard perutz sat there in ramstein us airbase played his part in us not all dying that night <laughs> um and that was it really the night passed they had this maximum moment of tension and because of certain people's actions they sort of the, the Soviets didn't attack and in Washington they didn't attack and obviously in Washington, London, Bonn and Paris these people were blissfully unaware of how close they'd come to a preemptive wow. nuclear strike during that day Yeah. before. The war game ended on the morning of the 11th of November and everyone came out of their bunkers and went about wow. their business absolutely no idea that Andropov had almost yeah. pressed the button. You and know, and two, It was two days later that cruise missiles were actually deployed in Britain on the 13th of That's November. That's right, yeah. Um, That's right. I remember that because that was, like I was saying before, I was so frustrated that I couldn't go to Greenham like all the student girls I was living with that I went round my university town and I sprayed, I got a bit drunk, and I sprayed graffiti on the banks and the army recruiting centre. I sprayed sprayed jobs, not bombs across the thing. But uh, And I told my mates I'd done this and they went, you never did. Mm. I said, I did. I sprayed jobs, not bomb all over the bank. And they went in their town next morning. They came back pissing themselves with laughing. They said, what, what? I said, what's so funny? They went, you put jobs, comma, not bombs, full stop. <laughs> and it's like, <laughs> it's like really well, well punctuated graffiti there, John. I see you've got an English degree. And uh, right, there's no, there's no need. There's you don't no, have to be sloppy just because you're protesting. Comma and full stop. I put that in my book and that still gets quoted back to me. I put it in my first book and people still text, <laughs> tweet me and go jobs, comma, not bombs, full stop. <laughs> <laughs> well, but, and that was. The closest we came to nuclear war. Amazing. Um, and there was a film out that year. Much. There was a film out that year called War Games, which opens with exactly this scenario mm. of an exercise, which you think it's a nuclear attack at the beginning of the film. Then they reveal it's a, uh, a tryout, a test, an exercise. And the guys get stripped of their positions because they wouldn't press the buttons. So all this is played out in a movie of that year, which shows you what how tensions were high and how the arts were sort of responding to that. Absolutely. Mm. Um, now, of course, you know, that's the closest we've come to nuclear war that we know of. Right. There was a time in 1995, actually, where it came quite close, uh, when Boris Yeltsin became the first world leader ever to activate a nuclear briefcase. Did you know about that? No, I didn't know about that. Yeah, Russian radar systems detected the launch of 
what turned out to be a Norwegian research rocket being used to study the Northern oh Lights. God. It's terrible. You know what? I think paintball has got a lot to answer for. I think boys with their toy guns, <laughs> they need to like get oh, to like yeah. 10 and just let give the guns to your little nephew and take up gardening. <laughs> when you've grown up men, you need to stop being so into war. Mm. and. But it just shows, doesn't it? Like mutually assured destruction is all very well, but misinterpretation can happen so yeah, easily and you watch something like the series uh, chernobyl and look about the arrogance and the certainty of the people in command and how sure they were right and how uh utter disaster can uh, follow from that and as long as we have nuclear weapons yeah. the risk of this happening again is still there absolutely and who knows how many times it has happened that we don't just about. don't absolutely. know about so um the book that I mentioned before, Command and Control, by the same guy who did um, Fast Food Nation. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's a really good book, actually. I really recommend it. But, it, you know, it talks about, particularly in America, you know, times when things have come yes. close. And it is really horrifying. It's terrifying. But... Um, the book that I've read um, for this podcast particularly uh, is... Because the Able Archer is a thing I've known about, but there's not that much written about it. Well, it only came out later, didn't you it? Know, it, was, it was secret at the time. It did, and... Yeah, and it was the National Security Archives in America. There's a lot of researchers and historians yeah. finally got the information fairly recently. And so now there's books being written about yeah. it. Uh, the one I read is a book by Taylor Downing called The World at the Brink, 1983, right. uh, which was really good. And there was that um, se uh, series. And a, and a good that, sort of... It was a good series. Deutschland 83, was it? What was? Deutschland 83 talked about Abel Archer and, yeah, yeah was uh, involved yeah. that. And... Uh, yeah. yeah, that's what I command and control. I do read The Spy and the Traitor about ben the Oleg Gordievsky story because yeah. it's a, it's such an incredible Absolutely. story. Absolutely. Uh, well, um, that's a very, yeah, thorough, very thorough account of the day we all <laughs> nearly died and the day your seventh birthday party was nearly ruined. <laughs> nearly went off with a bang. Thank you, Angela, for taking us through that. <laughs> thank you, John. And, um, and thank you all for listening. Thank you for listening. Uh, we'll be back again with another episode of uh, We Are History if we're not destroyed in uh, all-out nuclear war. I'll be all right. I'm in my bunker. Give us reviews on... Uh, <laughs> give us reviews. Give us five stars on... Uh, oh, yeah, on iTunes. On Please iTunes, do that. that. Tell shit. your friends and families. Tweet about us. Tell everyone to download us. Get hold of your friends' phones and just subscribe. Yeah, or steal phones. They don't phones. even need to know you've done it. Even though there's a lockdown. To go up to people in the park, take their phones off them and give us five stars. <laughs> that was John O'Farrell who said that, not me. <laughs> Thank you for listening, <laughs> we'll see everyone. See you next time. See you next time on the We Are History. <laughs>